Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Need to Know podcast. Aaron Jones here, your host, back with our friend Robert Daly from the Kissinger Institute at the Wilson Center. Hey, Robert. It's good to be back with you. Now, we have you on a lot, but hey, it's China. China's a big country. It's a lot of people, and there's a lot going on with U.S. foreign policy. But something I wanted to chat with you about, um, it, you know, we've we've talked many times over the years about China and the U.S. and its relationship, um, and and sometimes the discussion will come up, is this a Cold War? Is this like what we saw with the U.S. and the USSR back during the Cold War? And you always had a, a resistant attitude towards that, uh, towards that formulation of it. Um, but in recent discussions, you you seem to ha- have thought a bit more about this, and and of course as Things have changed with China over the last couple of years. It probably does call for a reformulation. So I just wanted to pick your brain about this. Simple question, U.S.-China relationship. Is it a Cold War? Are we approaching a Cold War? What are your thoughts? I think it is a Cold War. It isn't the Cold War. It's not exactly like the one between the United States and, and the Soviet Union, which, of course, involved much of the rest of the world. But I think that there are enough features now of the US-China relationship. They've been around long enough and their trajectories are bad enough that it's time to sort of make the call. It's time to say, yes, this is a Cold War. It's going to be different. Uh, And there are a couple of reasons that I say that, a couple of factors. Uh, One, which you and I have discussed a great deal, is that it really is a worldwide competition, which touches on really every aspect of engagement between countries. It's military, it's technological, it's norms and practices, it's economic. And we are competing not only for each country to do as well as it possibly can to gain as much influences as it can, but we're also competing uh, to limit the influence of the other guy with fairly severe prejudice and distrust. So that's the big piece. Uh, Then we do have China's military buildup. Uh, which is ongoing and which we keep learning more about. But its nuclear capabilities are expanding rapidly, and there's a chance that its nuclear doctrines will be changing along with them. They're ahead of us in hypersonics to deliver uh, warheads. They're building new silos out in the west of China. Now, their their nuclear force is still a small fraction of our own, so it's hard to get uh, all in a huff from a moral point of view about this, but we'd be fools if we weren't profoundly concerned. China is changing uh, its military doctrines. We have a true security dilemma in the Western Pacific, which we've spoken about. We have irreconcilable interests uh, in some areas. That's another reason. And then broadly, socially, I I grew up during the Cold War, and I remember doing duck and cover drills, at least in the first grade. I remember when Ronald Reagan joked that missiles were in the air, and a lot of us, including me, I was listening to that, didn't realize it was a joke. And I remember the the, the real terror for a few minutes, what that 
felt like I was a diplomat in the Cold War, served under Reagan and Bush one. And as in the Cold War, increasingly, the United States and China uh, are alienated from each other, not only socially, but institutionally. So public opinion polls show that Chinese and Americans have largely negative views of each other now, about 80% are uh, institutions like universities, uh, NGOs, uh, our creators, our tourists, they're all uh, much further apart from each other. That old curiosity about each other is gone. And so be because of that, mutual hostility is actually becoming an organizing principle in China and the US. So these are a lot of the reasons that I started to say, well, maybe we have to rethink you know, the Cold War piece. We're also competing in the realm of ideas and ideology. We are beginning to form separate and mutually exclusive uh, global systems, financial and technological systems uh, in particular. And all of these things were true. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, have, with Putin having stood with Xi Jinping before the invasion, and China subsequently has doubled down on support uh, for Russia uh, repeatedly. And so I think that the burden of proof at this point is really on those who want to claim that this isn't a Cold War. Interesting formulation. So, and, and one question that, I, that came to mind while you were speaking is, are there universal rules for what constitutes a cold war there's no you know there's no dictionary definition i've i've heard people attempt it and say well that you've got to have a proxy war to have a cold war that's a, that's exactly where i was going that seemed to be a fundamental tenet of the cold war that existed between the us and the ussr but is that something that you expect that we'll see is that a universal rule so the, the, that was, you know, proxy wars were certainly a major feature of the first Cold War. Do they have to be a feature of all Cold Wars or of Cold War II? Proxy wars happened in part uh, because of the post-colonial period after World War II, where you had a lot of uh, very new, uh, very weak, weakly governed countries uh, that made, you know, fertile ground for this kind of thing. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be a feature, I think, of any Cold War. I think that this long-term, multifaceted competition, mutual hostility and alienation expressed organizationally throughout two societies, you know, the whole of society approach um, such that it has an impact on, you know, on the professions, on institutions, on communities. I, I think that that is a Cold War and that it may or may not involve proxy wars. So I, I don't think that the first Cold War need be taken as a template for all forms of rivalry that we decide to call Cold War. Well, I, another reason why I ask this is something you you said, and is it often comes up in conversations like this. They will say, well, I grew up during the Cold War. Therefore, I know what a Cold War is and what it looks like. And you you say there is no you say there is no template, but yet that's what we're often hearing is I grew up during the Cold War. We're not seeing proxy wars. We're not seeing this and that. Therefore, there is no Cold War. Or they say I grew up during the Cold War. This there's this and that, and so therefore we are in a Cold War. <laughs> people people often confuse personal experience and emotion with geopolitical reality, right? <laughs> Where do, when do you decide? It's a good question, and and 
there are, I've got a lot of friends who would disagree with me about saying this is a Cold War. And one of the questions that they ask is, why say it? What's the point? What does it teach us? What good does it do? You know, or aren't you just, you know, an alarmist and you're, you know, who's trying to, to, to coin a phrase or to christen this relationship? And, and I think that there is a reason to call it a Cold War. I think there's a very important reason to call it a Cold War. And that is this, in, in all of our discussions, really, since the Need to Know podcast began, we've been talking about the various aspects of Chinese policy and behavior that are problematic for the United States, right? And we have been trying uh, under the Obama administration and under Trump and now under Biden, we have been trying to reason from our many concerns and complaints about China toward a coherent strategy. And not only have we failed in that, things have actually become worse. And the likelihood of a catastrophic collapse uh, in the relationship has gone up. There's another way to come at this, uh, which is, the, and this is what I think the Cold War piece does. By calling it a Cold War, yes, you create a sense of urgency, but you also give a strategic focus to the relationship. Once you call this a Cold War, it is very clear, and it is urgently clear, that we must keep it cold. Calling it a Cold War keeps the focus where I think it belongs, namely on the fact that the United States and China must not go to war. We must not go to war. That's what that's what a cold calling it a cold war does. And what that allows you to do, if you know that our goal is not simply to tell China and tell the world all the reasons that we think China's a bad player, but if we say we must not go to war with China, then the next question is: how do we create the conditions that are conducive to peaceful management of this rivalry? And when you ask that question, you have to ask, how do we adjust? Are there places where we can accommodate? Or are, things, are there things that we can let go? Are there things we can prioritize? Rather than hitting China with a Louisville slugger upside the head in every single realm simultaneously, because we don't like what it does in human rights and support of SOEs and what it does in the South China Sea and what it does on the Indian border, and so on and so forth. So I think that calling it a Cold War is not alarmist. It's actually necessary to give us the focus and the urgency that we need to create the conditions for peace. That's why I think it matters. That is a really interesting way to think of it, different angle. And also, you know, kind of the piggyback on the last question and maybe what your answer informs this a little bit. But when I think of the policymakers who are in place today, when I think of Congress, uh, and a lot of the people in the administration who have a lot of people who are principals, elected officials, cabinet officials, etc., who lived during the what you called the first Cold War. A lot of their staff and advisors did not live through that. That kind of puts the lie to, well, there may not be universal rules then because you've got a new crop of policymakers that are coming into play. But how, how does a new generation of policymakers need to think about this new rivalry, this new Cold War, this formulation? Because one of the things about a Cold War is everybody sort of has to agree that it's a Cold War, and it doesn't feel like we're there yet. So, yes, a very valid point. Um, Henry Kissinger, it was about two years ago, he said that the United States and China were in the foothills of the Cold War. And if we were in the foothills two years ago, we've already hit several false summits, and we're now at the, we're there, right? It's, 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 no one wants to call it a Cold War because it's depressing and it's a failure 
and it, we thought that we were better than this and we'd moved beyond it, right? And we've been learning in all kinds of ways in our domestic and our international politics uh, that we haven't progressed as much as we thought. But you're quite correct that every that people sort of have to agree for it's a, that it's a Cold War for calling it a Cold War to work in the positive way that I just described. We can be sure that China will not call it a Cold War. They will not accept that formulation. Whenever the United States uh, says or does anything critical of China or tries to strengthen an alliance, uh, China accuses us of having a Cold War mentality. So they're not going to call it a Cold War. Xi Jinping has been using a different phrase, uh, which is uh, under the new situation. This is, I know that sounds like nonsense to non-Chinese speakers, but when, you know, he had a a very friendly talk uh, with Kim Jong-un of North Korea after Russia invaded Ukraine, and it was a call for greater solidarity. And Xi Jinping said, you know, under the new circumstances, he's talking about a Cold War. He won't use the precise phrase. uh, And certainly many people in America won't use it, although I think there's been a real shift um, since the first of the year, but especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in which China is to some degree implicated. And so I, I think I'm, I may be a little bit ahead of the curve, but not that much. This is shifting very fast. You're hearing a lot of, uh, you know, new Cold War, uh, Cold War II. Uh, I don't like Cold War 2.0. It sounds flippant, and if it's 2.0, that means it's an upgrade, right? Well, this is this is not an upgrade. Uh, this is retrograde. So I don't like Cold War 2.0, uh, but I, I think that the broader realization that you're that you're rightly flagging here um, is around the corner. Uh, we're certainly only one crisis away from crystallizing the understanding that this is the nature of the relationship. Uh, we don't yet know. Sorry, double negative. We don't yet know that Ukraine isn't that crisis, depending on how this develops. So we, I think, as I say, I think we're already there, uh, and you know, more and more people are becoming to that realization. Mm. And I think it's probably really interesting to note what we said earlier that there is no template to this. So also, one of the things about calling it Cold War 2.0 is as if it's a carb- oh, it could be an upgrade, but it also could just be a carbon copy of the last one which would cause us to miss an awful lot uh, that would be nuanced in this, the, the new circumstances. as Right, and, and there is going to be a lot that's nuanced and different. I am personally uh, very hopeful. I think it's essential that even within a Cold War, which is very high stakes, say not Cold War light, uh, the more we can remain involved with China, the more we can interact, the more we can engage the more likely we are to be able to manage this peacefully. Uh, I think that multilateralism is far stronger uh, than it was you know, during the first Cold War when you really had two broad camps that were isolated from each other. Neither China nor the U.S. can get the kind of complete victory that the U.S. achieved or imagined it achieved at the end of the first Cold War. We're looking for relative influence in a world where allies and partners organizations, corporations uh, have a far more agency and awareness, more tools, more experience uh, than they did previously. And I think that they will um, probably play a very positive uh, mitigating role uh, in a new Cold War. And it's also going to be this new Cold War is unfolding at a time when China and the United States are aware that we face huge, truly epical 
challenges, you know, global warming and the loss of biodiversity. You know, we've talked a lot about globalization of supply chains, but the globalization of pathogens and crime, ideas, information, population flows, the emergence of new technologies, there is a great deal on all of our plates. The United States and China also both face tremendous domestic fragility, which is going to limit their ability to focus on rivalry. So it will be a very different kind of Cold War. Again, a Cold War, not the Cold War. Well, maybe you heard it here first. Uh, you say you're a little bit ahead of the curve. That's what we like. We don't mind having that happen with our Wilson Center experts. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more for a separate podcast about some predictions that came true. So, Robert, happy to have you back on, and we will have you back on soon. Good to be here. Thanks so much. <laughs>